Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Ukraine has accused Russia of state terrorism. This coming after a former Russian lawmaker and a witness in a treason case against former Ukrainian leader Viktor Yanukovych was shot dead in broad daylight outside his hotel in central Kiev, Ukraine today. Here to tell us a little bit more about Russia and its uh, efforts and responsibilities in the international order is Adam Morelli. He is a former U.S. ambassador to Bahrain and a State Department deputy spokesman. Uh, ambassador Morelli, thank you for being with us. I wonder if we could just get your reaction to this, uh, this event in Ukraine today. Well, uh, disturbing but not surprising. Uh, Russia has a has a history and a pattern of offing its opponents. Uh, you know, just two days ago, um, a, a lawyer who was bringing a case against the Russian government for corruption accidentally fell out of his fourth-story apartment in Moscow while uh, taking a bathtub up the stairs. Okay, and the Russians have ruled it's not an accident. So, look, let's be clear: Russia is a clear and present danger to the United States and to the rules-based international order that was put in place after the Cold War. And until and unless we recognize that and have a concerted policy with our allies to confront it, whether it be in the Baltics, in the Balkans, uh, or in, in, in Central Europe and the Ukraine, we are going to get our lunch eaten by a much more aggressive and opportunistic uh, threat that is on that is that is out to get us. It's that simple. Ambassador Aureli, given your comments that are uh, very strong about the potential danger that Russia poses to the U.S. and to many other nations, how damaging is the current administration's approach to that country and, but aside from that, to that country, to current alliances like NATO and others uh, that have potentially curtailed Russian power? Yeah, well, I'd say it's a little early to tell uh, because we really don't know what the administration's approach to Russia is. You hear different things, whether it's from the White House or the State Department or the Defense Department. But I think, you know, look, Russia has an active and aggressive campaign to separate the United States from its Western allies and to sow divisions within the Western alliance. They're doing it in the Balkans, through countries like Albania and Moldova uh, and Hungary, where they've been very effective at uh, at dividing the opposition and creating extreme right-wing movements, uh, like they've done in the United States. So, you know, we're going to see it in elections coming up in a number of countries where Russia is just trying to roil the waters and prevent countries and those governments from being friendly to the United States. Well, what in, given that perspective, what do you make of Rex Tillerson, the current Secretary of State, uh, not attending, deciding not to attend an upcoming NATO meeting and instead uh, later on uh, going to a meeting in Russia? Does that concern yeah. you? Well, I think that decision is uh, under review, and my my understanding from people in the State Department is that they're going to reschedule it so that Tillerson can do it. But to your question, the it's not what I think. It's the outcry of 
of our European allies and everybody else who said, wait a minute, you can't do this. And it was a miscalculation. It was an unforced error by the by the State Department to, to decide not to go to a NATO ministerial, uh, to meet the Chinese president instead, and then to go to Russia. It just it sent so many wrong signals uh, about U.S. priorities and U.S. commitment to traditional allies. And that's why people are asking questions is where does the United States stand on Russia? Uh, and until we actually take some action and make some clear statements by the president, you know, it's like the Secretary of State says one thing, the Defense Department, Defense Secretary says something. But until it's the president, you know, it, these are all the, you know, number two and three officials is not the number one and number one that counts. Ambassador Aureli, you spent 24 years as a Foreign Service officer, and in that time, you obviously have met with many heads of state. What Maybe go through some of them and tell us what their reaction is to Russia's involvement in non-Russian affairs. Well, it's pretty clear. Uh, Let's go from north to south. Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia. Norway, Finland, Sweden, all these countries feel very much at risk uh, that Russia has increased the number of troops on their borders uh, and NATO has flowed forces to defend them. Uh, going south, Poland obviously is a, has a history of, of, of uh, conflict and intimidation from Russia. Um, Germany obviously is, is the anchor of Europe, the security and political and economic anchor of Europe. Nobody is more... Um, Nobody is more hawkish on Russia, I think, than Angela Merkel, which is why it's so disturbing, frankly, that 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 Trump and Merkel don't have the kind of chemistry that you would that the two strongest Western powers should have when they're facing a serious threat from the east. Now, back to the back to the the um, the unrest that that Russia is sowing uh, in Europe. Uh, go to the Balkans, go to Albania, go to uh, Kosovo, right. go to Serbia. And that is exactly where the, that is the soft underbelly of Europe. That's where Russia is trying to exploit divisions and create uh, client regimes. We got to leave it there. I'm sorry, Ambassador Aureli. He's the former U.S. ambassador to Bahrain. Well, if you're invested in stocks, the S&P 500 is up nearly 5% so far this year. And if you're taking a look at what's going on in bonds, the 30 years, 3.02%. Here to help us make sense of all this is Stephen Sarge Guilfoyle. He is the founder and the president of Sarge 986. And Sarge, maybe you could just tell people you were a floor trader for over 30 years, although you don't look it. Um, Gosh, thanks. Yeah, well, there you go. Uh, that's the nicest thing anyone's going to say to you all day. Uh, is there a um, uh, a connection between this health care vote that is uh, scheduled for tonight in the House and what traders and investors are doing with their money today? Oh, certainly. I, since the sell-off on Tuesday, I'm sure you've noticed that it's almost as if we're skating on thin ice, we're walking on eggshells, however you want to put it. Uh, we're waiting to see if we can get to the tax cut, to the fiscal spending, to further deregulation. This is what traders want to see. We really don't care all that much about our health care, at least not today. When one of our kids gets sick, we're going to care. But today we care about 
how to propel the financials further, how to take the growth trade further. You know, I feel like there's been a shift in narrative, though, in the past week from this is a booming economy, one that has momentum and is gaining steam to we're not sure what some of these tea leaves mean that it might be giving us, you know, different different types of uh, uh, views. We were talking offline about how you think that the Fed, if they hike too quickly, could end up derailing the economy. Do you really think that the economy and that the stock market is built on a recovery that is so thin that a an extra or, or you know, 25 basis point hike, in addition to what is uh, perhaps warranted by the economy, could potentially derail the, the stock market? This is the third hike in a cycle, all right? And we haven't really seen economic progression all that much. We've seen slow and steady economic progression, but the fourth quarter, the economy grew 1.9%. This quarter, if the Atlanta Fed is correct, and they're not usually correct, but if they are correct, it's growing at 0.9%. CPI isn't really there. Yes, it's up 2.7% on a year-over-year basis, but in April, the, com- the comparisons get very tough. And now that oil's rolled off a cliff, that headline inflation is not really going to be there. Well, but how do you then justify being bullish on stocks and then seeing all of these sort of tea leaves that suggest that perhaps the market is the same slow growth uh, place that it was in last year? Well, stocks are up because consumer confidence has been higher. Home builder confidence has been higher. Small business optimism has been higher. And earnings have been better for two quarters. But that's all based on this growth agenda, this pro-business agenda that we, at least for some time now, thought because the president and the House and the Senate were all from the same party, or at least on a majority basis, that we would it wouldn't be so hard to get things done. As we're learning, you don't really need an opposing party to create problems for yourself. It, we're, we're going to have a little, we'll find out today just how realistic this pro-business agenda is. It sounds like a lot is being based on what people think, not on what is actually happening or what appears to be at least scientifically discernible. Oh, certainly. Take a look at valuations. They've been higher, right? This is... You want to pay 21 times for the S&P 500? Because that's what it's trading at right now. Well, you know, my cousin gave me a couple of nice shirts when I was a kid, and I grew into them. And that's what we're hoping that earnings are going to do. We're hoping that earnings... We're not sure. No one's ever sure. Hey, I've lost money probably probably half the time. you got to know how to play your winners. But that growing into the earnings idea is something that's been batted around Wall Street. And we did believe, or do believe, I'm not going to throw in the towel just yet, the financials are popping a little bit today, which means they're working on something very hard in the House. We don't really know what this bill will look like by the time they vote on it, if they vote on it. But if they do vote on it, that's going to be taken as a positive. You know, I want to ask you something about uh, something that the nominee to be the SEC chair said in his prepared comments. He's testifying today in front of the Senate. Um, he noted that the U.S. capital markets, public capital markets, are less competitive than they have been in the past. Uh, and he pointed to the IPO market, in particular, uh, U.S. listed IPOs by non-U.S. companies and talking about how much uh, the volume of those transactions have declined. Do you agree, first of all, that the decline in this market uh, is a signal of some broader ill in, in U.S. public capital markets? And second of all, whether you know his assessment is correct that we are less competitive in the U.S.? I think we are somewhat less competitive in the U.S. than we used to be. I, I don't really see the, the connection there altogether. I know that the public has been slow to support some of these IPOs. Yes, we see the Snapchat that opens above the price. We see a few of these open above the syndicate price, but they don't run like they used to. Nobody opens or is priced at, like, say, 40 and runs to 140 anymore. Those days are long behind us. So the easy money 
isn't always there. And maybe, maybe firms also just don't want to give up control of the operation just yet if they, got, if they have something they think will be better in the future. And if there are higher valuations going forward, if there is a pro-growth economy that finally comes to fruition later on, you'll get a higher valuation for that IPO. Can we talk about some numbers having to do with the U.S. dollar? Because I'm looking at it against the euro 107. Some people saying if it breaks 109, then you're going to see some big moves out of the dollar and out of U.S. equities. Dollar also weakening against the uh, pound sterling, 125, and uh, 133 against the uh, can dollar, 111 against the yen. What's the, what, you know, how's, how does that play out? Well, uh, in one regard, there's reason for the euro to get stronger. The, Europe is getting a little bit better. The ECB is probably going to have to tighten monetary policy. They're already going to start tapering in April. So we're, the ball's rolling in that regard. From a U.S., from a, from a domestic point of view, this to me could mean that the border adjustment might fall apart, that it may be used as a weapon, a, unil a bilateral weapon in negotiations with, say, a China or a Mexico, rather than a legislative tool, which will hurt the retailers on a broader scale. Uh, you manage money for your family, correct? Correct. How has your cash allocation been recently? Has it been going up or going down? Uh, I, right after the election, I went to a very low cash allocation. cash allocation, because I did believe that Donald Trump was better for the equity markets than was Hillary Clinton. So that night, that night I went into the futures and, and got after it when it was at the lows. So I, the election worked out very well for me for a few months. I, I can't argue that. Uh, right now I've taken some profits. All right. The last two weeks or so I've taken profits in the financial names. I've put some of that into cash. I've rotated into areas, not defensive areas truly, but areas that have been beaten down recently, like the airlines and like the energy stocks. I've speculated in some energy names now that energy, now that WTI crude is approaching the $47 support level. So I, basically cash levels are lower than they were, but I, as a guy who is somewhat conservative, I would suggest to any retail investor listening out there, you need money in case your boiler breaks. Thank you so much. Definitely wise words. Your boiler can break, and especially when it's still so cold in New York uh, in, in March. It's nice to have a boiler. Uh, Stephen Gilfoyle, thank you so much for joining us. He's founder and president of Sarge 986 LLC, uh, and he worked for decades as a New York Stock Exchange floor trader. This is Bloomberg. Now, let's uh, go to Paul Sweeney. He's director of North American Research for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, there was news this morning that just recently crossed that Bob Iger, Walt, Walt Disney's chief executive officer, agreed to a contract uh, that would keep him atop the world's largest entertainment company until July 2019. Uh, shares are up uh, almost a percent. Uh, Paul, what does this mean for Disney to have Bob uh, commit to staying for another few years? Yeah, I think this is very good for the 
uh, Disney investors. I think um, <clears throat> clearly the succession issue did not work as well as the company had, had hoped over the last several years. Um, you know, uh, Tom Staggs, who was the heir apparent, um, uh, left the company. Uh, so, you know, Bob has been, uh, in a sense, of uh, staying on until they find a successor here. So this is, you know, this is obviously a large company, diverse company. Uh, they've had very strong senior leadership at this company for a very long time. So I'm sure they want to be very careful about uh, who they identify and ultimately appoint as a potential heir apparent to replace Bob Iger. So this, if nothing else, just buys them another year to get that done. Paul Sweeney, why is this such a challenge? Um, you know, the question is um, – they had spent so long uh, identifying uh, two uh, very viable candidates to s- succeed Bob Iger. They set up a race between uh, Tom Staggs and Jay Rasulo, another high-ranking executive, really over the last 10 years. Um, and uh, they identified uh, Tom Stagg as an heir apparent, and then it just didn't work out at the end. So they really didn't have a plan B. Uh, so Do we know uh, why it didn't work out? I mean, uh, we, 10 we, we, years we, we, is a long time to figure out that something doesn't work. Exactly right, and that's what really caught uh, investors by surprise a couple of years ago when the you know when Tom Staggs uh, did leave the company it really you know raised the question gee I thought you guys really had a good strong uh, healthy uh, succession plan in place it looked to be working until it wasn't uh, so that kind of put the, the company back on its heels a little bit and uh, I think they're still there um, and uh, they recognize that they need more time to identify somebody to fill in uh, the shoes of Bob Iger which are arguably very difficult shoes to fill in at a time uh, that is a, uh, a time of a lot of change uh, for the media industry and for Disney in particular. So Iger is uh, 66 years old. He has been with the company for more than a decade. Why does he want to leave right now? I mean, yes, granted, maybe he just wants to go and spend more time with his family and go to the beach. But is there something else that sort of was encouraging him to leave? Well, I think one thing was uh, is when he initially had his uh, retirement date of a couple of years ago, it was he was going out literally on top. They it was planned to coincide with the opening of Shanghai Disney, which would be the you know a, a certainly a crowning achievement on in a very spectacular career, uh, but then the timing, obviously, with the succession didn't work out. I think the expectation was, you know, he, um, if a Democrat had been elected, he may have gone into politics. Uh, he was part of a group that was bidding for an NFL franchise in Los Angeles that, that did not win that franchise. So uh, he certainly has a lot of interest outside of uh, Disney that I think most folks felt like at his age there in the mid-60s that he would uh, be in a great position to pursue, but now, obviously, he needs to stay on a couple more years uh, and ensure that there is a a seamless transition to a new CEO. Does he need to ensure that ESPN and its high fixed costs are somehow resolved versus the uh, effort on the part of younger subscribers to look for those skinny bundles that may not include ESPN? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that's job one for Bob Iger and the management team over the next couple of years is to figure out a, a real digital solution uh, for their sports franchise. Um, right now they make obviously a tremendous amount of money off of ESPN, uh, but their customers are going more and more online, and they need to think about uh, creating a digital uh, online uh, product that works for um, you know this, this, this new world we're living in. They haven't done that yet, and that's job one. Uh, Paul, the, some of the headlines coming across now are saying that Walt Disney agreed to pay Iger $5 million in cash uh, for extending his contract with the company. How does that strike you for, uh, with respect to sort of how high or low it is with respect to executive compensation? 
Yeah, it's, it's, it's almost, uh, for Bob Iger and for the company, it's a de minimis amount. Um, media uh, executives, uh, including Bob Iger, are extraordinarily well compensated. If you take a look every single year at the top ten paid executives in America, there's a, a, a very good representation from the media industry. Uh, so Bob Iger's obviously, uh, uh, you know, created a lot of shareholder wealth for uh, investors, and I think most investors are very happy for whatever compensation he's able to ne- negotiate. The current uh, slate of Disney movies, uh, Beauty and the Beast, for example, what can you tell us about uh, how well it's doing and the franchise for Star Wars? Uh, Beauty and the Beast is it came in uh, well above expectations. Looks to be another global uh, hit, a global franchise, um, and it's just. Um there's no studio in the history of Hollywood that's had a run the way that Disney's had over the last 10 years. And if you take a look at their uh, slate of films coming up over the next several years, it looks very solid as well. And, and, and it's just, you know, they made a big investment in the film business about 10 years when they bought Pixar. Uh, then they bought Marvel Studios. And then they bought, most recently, Lucas Films, you know, investing well over $10 billion uh, in uh, the movie business. And they're now reaping the benefits of that by just hit after hit after hit from a lot of these pr- uh, proven uh, franchises including Star Wars. So you said that you started out by saying this is going to be a good thing for investors. Is there something in particular that Bob Iger brings to it uh, that investors should like? Well, I mean, he brings stability, and obviously investors, he's a proven uh, entity that's been uh, tremendously successful at the company and has created a tremendous amount of shareholder value uh, over his, his tenure. So uh, as you well know, I mean, investors don't like uncertainty, and um, so there already is a level of uncertainty about the succession overall, uh, but I think the news today just, you know, again, buys the time, buys the company another year to try to identify a, you know, a, a successor. I want to thank you very much for joining us. Paul Sweeney is the uh, head of North American Research and Media Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Shares of Disney, they're higher by about six-tenths of a percent after learning that Bob Iger will be remaining with the company until July of 2019. This is Bloomberg. We have talked a lot about the big healthcare vote that will happen this evening in Congress, uh, but we haven't talked quite as much about the details of how this healthcare bill is being changed uh, at the last minute in order to accommodate certain conservative views. But to do so, uh, I want to bring in Kevin Whitlaw, Congress editor for Bloomberg News. Kevin, what do you know about the specific changes that are being made currently as we speak to the healthcare bill? Well, the straight answer is we don't know yet whether any changes are going to be made or not. But um, some of the House conservatives who have been holding out on the bill have been negotiating directly with the White House on these things. They think they have some verbal agreements on the kinds of changes that might um, at least start to get them there. But it's not uh, a done deal. Uh, it hasn't yet uh, been signed off on by uh, uh, Paul Ryan or, or uh, Republican leaders, um, given that they're not directly involved. Uh, so, uh, and we also don't know whether the kinds of changes that uh, uh, that the conservatives are demanding are going to cause even more moderates to to flee from the bill. We are seeing a uh, a drip, drip, drip of uh, moderates starting to pull out their support coming out against the current version of the bill, and the changes that are being discussed um, could could make even more uh, get cold feet. Kevin, what about the numbers? I was reading one report that said about 30 Republicans had said that they would either vote against the measure or had not yet made up their minds. They need yeah, we, 216 we, is the magic number. 
That's right. They can only afford to lose about 20, uh, 21. Um, losing 22 or more probably um, kills the bill. And we, we'd say the number of firm no's to lean no's is probably somewhere between 25 and 30. But it is a fluid number. It keeps changing. And, and so, um, you know, we always have to be uh, a little careful of this. There's also been a thought that you just put the bill on the floor and make people vote on it. And it's going to be hard for Republicans to vote against something that actually repeals Obamacare. Um, having said that, there's obviously a ton of angst surrounding this vote. Um, uh, uh, on, on, on just about every political spectrum. Kevin, how many uh, moderate Republican votes are in uh, contention right now? Uh, well, we know of at least a handful. Uh, that list is probably up to yeah, somewhere between five or ten who have said no or are leaning no hard, um, and it only seems to be growing. So you're, you, you're looking at um, maybe uh, uh, somewhere around 18, 20 conservatives, 5, 10 moderates. You, that's sort of where you get to that sort of 25 to 30 number. So you've got people on both ends of the spectrum. And as you can imagine, you make the bill more conservative, you risk losing more moderates and vice versa. So they've got a real problem in, in trying to strike a balance. And it's just not clear that strong arming um, or charming from President Trump is going to get them over the finish line. It might still do it. The vote might still happen today. Uh, thing to keep in mind here is even if they somehow get this thing through the House, it actually faces an even tougher road in the Senate. What does this mean for the future of uh, House Speaker Paul Ryan? Well, that's a really good question. Um, I, you know, I think that, that uh, for President Trump, he's actually getting a taste of, of how difficult Paul Ryan's job actually is, um, uh, particularly wrangling uh, the House Freedom Caucus, this group of conservatives. These are people who actually back Trump. So in theory, Trump should have a lot of sway with these guys. But obviously, uh, he hasn't gotten there yet. Is Paul Ryan, where does he stand with respect to the conservatives versus the moderates? I mean, uh, obviously he helped craft the bill, but was he pushing it one way or, or another? Well, you know, he crafted a bill, and there has been some grumbling about the way he did it, sort of did it in, in a fair amount of secrecy and, and um, um, it didn't do a ton of work um, to sort of bring everyone in in the process. So there's definitely a certain amount of grumbling. The bill is a conservative bill, but it's certainly not as conservative as some uh, people in the party had wanted. So um, I think that, um, you know, there's been some minor level grumbling in the process. It's not clear that failure of the bill uh, endangers Paul Ryan's job immediately, but it certainly makes it look a lot more difficult um, for him to deliver on some of the priorities ahead because, you know, the tax reform debate isn't going to be any easier than, than this Obamacare debate. Um, so uh, you know, if, if you can't get through a priority that you've spent seven years saying that you're going to do, not the world's greatest start for him. Kevin, uh, large protests against the bill uh, planned for today uh, in Washington and around the country. Have the Republicans really done enough on the ground work to get public opinion behind this change in the bill, such as the kind of groundswell that we heard for the initial uh, crafting of the Affordable Care Act for Obamacare. Yeah, I mean, I think the, they. I, I think they thought they didn't really have to do that kind of work. I mean, I think they they looked at the the election victories and said, you know, hey, we ran on on repealing Obamacare and we won, so so people must be with us. But um, it's pretty clear they didn't do um, uh, uh, enough uh, prep work to try to sell their bill and what its what its replacement would do. But you know, here again, the opposition split. There are some um, you know who, who think it doesn't go far enough, and there's obviously now plenty of people who are worried about uh, losing their health care. The problem, I think, for 
Paul Ryan is is had the this repeal effort gone through a couple of years ago, it would have been probably a little easier and less politically um, sensitive. But now that people have have a lot of people have gotten insurance through through the system, have been using this, and and now rely on it. Um, it uh, now obviously there's a set of Americans who are worried about things being taken away from them. So. Thank you very much, Kevin Whitelaw is our congressional editor for Bloomberg News, giving us the latest on the attempt to repeal and replace uh, the Affordable Care Act. A vote scheduled for this evening in the House. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.